going to be reading 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm a lover, not a fighter. You know, one resource that I consulted this week said that phrase has been used in almost 60 movies. In fact, it's the title of a couple of songs. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Now, you might be thinking, well, that phrase has nothing to do with me, but I believe that at least half of the phrase describes every one of us here. I'm a lover. You're a lover. We are lovers. Human beings are creatures that are driven by our love. What we love, we value. What we love, we pursue. What we love, we serve. We're creatures who are driven by our loves. I'm a lover. You're a lover. And at the heart of the human condition is that we love all the wrong things. The heart of the human condition is that we love the wrong things. And friends, when we love the wrong things, we value the wrong things. When we love the wrong things, we pursue the wrong things. And when we love the wrong things, we serve the wrong things. We're all lovers, and the problem is we love the wrong things. And because we love and value and pursue the wrong things, it creates chaos. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul describes in the portion of this letter of 2 Timothy. The passage that Alex read for us this morning is dark. Eighteen characteristics, and none of them are good. And if I was to just spend two minutes of time talking about each one of these characteristics, just just two minutes of time offering examples for you ripped from the headlines, seen in our schools, witnessed in our workplaces, exposed from our lives, it would take me 38 minutes just to go through all of them. And I don't think any of us want to spend more than a half an hour doing a deep dive on this list. And we don't have to. Because we live this and see this each and every day, don't we? We live this and we see this each and every day in the world around us. It is because as the Apostle Paul writes right there in verse 1, he says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. In the last days. Friends, we live in the last days. Just a couple weeks ago, we celebrated Jesus Christ's resurrection on Easter. 
Well, 40 days after that, he ascended into heaven. And 10 days beyond that, at the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended upon his church. And in Acts chapter 2, we hear the Apostle Peter explain what happened. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall see visions. Your, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. He says, in the last days, the Spirit came upon God's people as predicted by the prophet Joel and other Old Testament prophecies because this is the last days. The last days began with Christ's ascension and the Spirit's coming upon His church. And Paul says, Timothy, you live in the last days. Church, we live in the last days. And so in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. So none of this list, Timothy, none of this list, church, should surprise you. We live in the last days. And today we experience the same difficulties that Timothy experienced, that the early church experienced. And you might even argue that we experience them in greater degree. And today, rather than examining all of the nasty fruit of the problem as listed in today's passage, we're going to spend some time examining the root of the problem. Rather than going through all the fruit of the problem, we're going to talk about the root of the problem. And friends, the root of the problem is that we are lovers and we love all the wrong things. I don't know if you noticed in the list that Alex read for us, but Paul began and ended the list talking about our disordered love. Really, this list is kind of like some kind of disgusting sandwich of disordered love. And the bread are our disordered loves. And in the center, the filling is all of the chaos that comes of it. You see, look at the beginning. Verse 2, people will be lovers of self. And verse 4, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There it is. Our loves are disordered. We do love self. We don't love God. And in between is all the chaos that results when our loves are disordered. In between is all of the chaos when we love the wrong things, we value the wrong things, we pursue the wrong things, we serve the wrong things. We are lovers of self and not lovers of God, and that is the problem. That's actually the root of all sin. We're lovers of self and not lovers of God. Disordered loves lead to disordered lives, lead to disordered relationships, lead to a disordered world, leads to the chaos that we read in this list. And the root of the problem is that we love ourselves and don't love God. And friends, before we talk about the what at the root of this problem, I want to talk a little bit about the who. You know, who's Paul primarily, primarily talking about here? I've got to tell you, the worst part about this list, the absolute worst part about this list, friends, is that Paul writes to Timothy, he writes to the church, and you know what? He's not describing those people out there. When you look at the context, he's actually describing those people in here. He's offering a picture of what's going on in the church. You know, Paul opened up this, this section with verse 1, the connecting word, but. He's connecting what he said today, what Alex just read for us, with what he said previously. What he said previously is what we studied last week. 
Last week, Paul instructed the church and he said, I know that false teachers have infiltrated the church and then gave instructions for how to deal with them in 2 Timothy 2, 24-25. He said, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So, So Paul is continuing this discussion. And although he hopes some of these teachers are going to repent, not all will. The opposition will continue because these are the last days. There are times of difficulty. So this description isn't merely a description of those people out there. It's a description of people in the church whose loves have become disordered. And the fact that Paul is focusing here on the church is especially evident at the end of the passage. You know, Paul uses a common technique. He he gives a list and then he puts something at the end of the list and, and says a little bit more about it. To to emphasize it. So look at verse 5. He talks about those having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul says, Timothy, your opponents, the false teachers that have come in the church, they have the appearance of godliness. They look good. They sound spiritual. They serve on a lot of church committees. They're really good tithers. But Paul says, watch out. Because they deny the power. They deny the power. Well, what does that mean? Well, from where does the power come? You know, you might remember, this is not the first time in this letter that we have heard Paul mention power. At the very beginning of Second Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 7, he said, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So the power is the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, these people have all the outward forms, but none of the inward power. They're all show, but no spirit. Religion without the Spirit. Friends, religion without the Spirit, it's not about God. It's about self. Because religion that's lived without the Spirit is all about loving yourself rather than loving God. Because it's about glorifying yourself and making yourself look good rather than glorifying God. It's about serving yourself before others rather than serving God. Disordered loves produce in the church those who have a form of godliness but do not submit to the power of the Spirit. And Paul warns, avoid such people. Now he's talking about people who refuse to repent, who obstinately and unrepentantly persist in show without the Spirit, whose religion is used to glorify themselves rather than glorify God. He says, avoid such people. Their loves are disordered, and as a result, their lives are disordered. So church, this list here, this list here really doesn't give us any room to be proud. And it doesn't give us any room at all to look down on those people out there. The list is a caution to the church, not merely a condemnation of the world. Because disordered loves are a danger to us all. A danger to us all. In fact, you might even say that Paul is warning Timothy here, and he's warning when the church starts to look like the world, there's a problem. Paul reminds Timothy and reminds us, friends, the followers of Jesus Christ should look different. And do we? 
Now, friends, what the world looks like shouldn't surprise us. Because if we're all lovers, what do we expect of a world full of disordered love? What do we expect of a world that does not love God, of a people looking for love in all the wrong places? Well, if we don't love God, we end up loving all the wrong things. It's like we sang this morning. I once was lost in darkest night, and I thought I knew the way. And the sin, it had promised me joy and life. But it led me to the grave. Friends, we chase after sin because it promises us love. We're lovers. We're looking to love and to be loved. And if we don't love God, we're going to love all kinds of other things that promise us joy and life. But in the end, every one of them only leads us to the grave. Disordered loves and disordered lives result in a disordered world. In fact, church, this list and description of the state of the world that doesn't love God, this shouldn't cause us to condemn the world. It should cause us to cry for the world. To weep for them. This world is filled with lovers desperately looking in all the wrong places for, for love and to be loved. They're clinging to things that they think will bring them joy and life, only to find their lives disordered and destroyed and death ahead of them. The sin that promised joy and life is only leading them to the grave. And church, this description should break our hearts. It should be a warning to us. But it should break our hearts for them. That we might go forth with the good news. Good news of the unfailing, restoring, reordering love of Jesus Christ. The gospel. The hope. The only hope for a world of lovers looking for love in all the wrong places. And friends, does it? Does it so cause our hearts to break? Cause our feet to go? Cause our mouths to speak? Now, while illuminating the condition of the world, Paul's words were primarily warning the church about the false teachers because some false teachers were taking advantage of the fact that we're all lovers with disordered loves and they were drawing to themselves new followers. Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, For among them are those who creep into the households, capture weak women, burdened with sins led astray with various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, just to be clear, Paul is not saying here that all women are weak-willed. He's specifically talking about those who are most vulnerable to the false teachers. Because of guilt from the past, their resolve was weak and they were susceptible to what these false teachers were selling. You see, in the letters of First and Second Timothy, false teachers in Ephesus tended to make one of two equal and opposite errors. Some of them, they practiced asceticism, a severe self-discipline and artificial self-denial that went beyond what Scripture called for. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul warns of those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So some of these false teachers were saying, hey, listen, if abstaining from sin is spiritual, then abstaining from these things will make you even more spiritual. Which sounds good. It looks good. But the problem is, the false teachers said it, but God never did. And in this specific case, both marriage and foods were created by God to be received and enjoyed with thanksgiving. Friends, we still struggle with this type of error and these type of false teachers in the church today. 
You know, some people command the same type of asceticism. Do you really want to be godly? Well, then abstain from rated R movies, social media, alcohol, non-Christians, embrace social justice, wear a tie on Sundays. Uh Uh-oh. Don't vote Democrat. Read the King James Version of the Bible only. Don't read those authors. Don't vote for Trump. Only listen to Christian music. And we have a list of things. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. The danger is when we think these things are going to earn us some kind of brownie points with God. And worst of all, we use many of these things to earn brownie points not with God, but with other people. Look at how spiritual I look because I don't do all these things, or I do all these things. It's religion for the purpose of loving ourselves. And the temptation towards it is powerful. And so there were false teachers that were drawing away followers who were taken in by the temptation of this type of a religion. Now, if asceticism was one extreme, the equal and opposite error, which some of the teachers were espousing, was just as dangerous. It's antinomianism, which literally means it's the teaching that there is no law, that all sort of sins are really acceptable. After all, if God is love, He's not going to judge you. You know, there were teachers then and teachers today going, oh, you did that or you struggle with this or you want to live that way? Well, it's all okay. I mean, God's love. He doesn't judge. Or, or that's not really that sinful. And people are led astray into believing that what God clearly says in the Scripture is, that He says is sinful is really not sinful. So one extreme is adding rules that God never commanded in order to make yourself look good. The other is erasing rules that God did command so you feel religious however you choose to live. One adds rules. One erases them. Which extreme are you more tempted by? Which fallacy are you more likely to fall into? Paul says these false teachers, they come in both varieties, and the danger is they're always drawing people away. And then in verse 7, he says, they're drawing people away who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Friends, that phrase, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, that's a perfect summary of so many in our world today. You know, a phrase that's become really popular today is spiritual journey. I'm on a spiritual journey. And in fact, the problem is there's nothing wrong with a spiritual journey. The problem is, though, we've come to emphasize a journey so much that many today never actually want to arrive at a destination. They've come to value the search, and so they no longer value certainty. Many value doubt over doctrine. They're always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. You know, recently, culture has heard so many deconversion stories about those who've left historic and orthodox Christianity. And many have embraced a new and a trendy condition that they call hopeful agnosticism. Now, the word word agnostic literally means not to know. So what they're saying is, hey, I am hopefully uncertain. I am hopefully lost. I mean, it's like saying I'm impossibly lost in the woods without a compass, but yet hopeful. If you're confessing you're in the dark when it comes to answering life's biggest questions and yet somehow you find yourself optimistic and hopeful, that doesn't make sense. But it's the condition of always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
But friends, it doesn't make any sense because we don't find peace in being lost. We don't celebrate being confused. There's no way for uncertainty to actually bring us hope. Friends, a journey seeks and celebrates, not avoids, a destination. The point of a journey is not just to wander, always learning and never able to arrive. The point of a journey is eventually to get somewhere. And for as much fun as the journey might be, you celebrate when you see the destination getting closer and finally coming into sight, don't you? However, just like in Timothy's day, we have people who are leading others astray on never-ending journeys to nowhere. We have people leading others to revel in their lostness, to celebrate their confusion, always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I'm hopefully agnostic. Friends, if I might suggest a better alternative to hopeful agnosticism, how about humble belief? Better than hopeful agnosticism is humble belief. Humbly admit there's much that I don't yet completely understand and there will always be room for me to grow. But I'm not just going to celebrate wandering aimlessly. There are things that I can humbly believe and take a hold of. Guideposts in the woods, points on the compass. These things, they've proven themselves true over time. They've proven themselves again and again. So I'm hopeful. Not hopefully agnostic, but humbly believing. Humbly holding to these things. And friends, which are you? Merely a hopeful agnostic wandering? Or a humble believer? holding to those things that have proven themselves, that have proven themselves again and again over the test of time. And Paul goes on in verses 8 and 9 to predict that the false teachers who are troubling Timothy and the church, they're soon going to be exposed for the charlatans that they are. Verse 8, Paul mentions these two men, Janus and Jambres. Now, in the book of Exodus, we read that Moses, he went to battle against the magicians of Egypt. He went to Pharaoh with the command, let my people go. And Exodus tells us that there were Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses. And we find in extra-biblical uh, extra Jewish writings that the names of these men were Janus and Jambres. Now, while these names don't appear in our Old Testament, they would have been very well known to Timothy and the other Jewish Christians of his day. And these two men had come to be known as kind of the archetypal villains. Like they dared to stand up against God's servant Moses. Whoa. So, when he mentions their names, it would have caused a reaction in Timothy and in the people that read this letter along with Timothy. Now, if you remember the story of Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh and being confronted by the magicians, friends, we find that the power of the magicians of Egypt, of Janus and Jambres, only went so far. You see, Aaron took his staff and he threw it down. It became a snake. And they go, hey, we can do that too. They threw down their staffs. They became snakes. And then Aaron's staff ate their snakes. And then the first plague came, and all the water in Egypt turned to blood, and they said, hey, we can do that too, and they made water become blood. The second plague came, and frogs covered the land of Egypt, and they said, hey, we can do that too, and they made frogs appear. And then the third plague came. Gnats came over the land, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Exodus 8. 18 through 19 says, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, 
but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. He said, Pharaoh, this is the real thing. This is the power. This is the finger of God. Janus and Jambres had a form of godliness, but they denied the power of God. And thus they were limited, and they were eventually exposed as limited, eventually exposed as charlatans, eventually exposed that their power could only go so far. And Paul says it's going to be the same way for the false teachers in Ephesus, Timothy. Their power looks impressive at first. But it only goes so far. It only goes so far, Timothy. And just like Janice and Jambres eventually were exposed, these false teachers, because they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They don't know the true power of the Spirit. So, so it was encouraging, Timothy, even if right now the false teachers seem to be keeping up with you and even gaining on you, don't fear. Their power is limited. Their religion is about loving and glorifying themselves, not loving and glorifying the Lord. And so they're going to be exposed for the self-lovers that they are. And in verse 9, he ends on this note of encouragement and confidence. He says, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. Because church, it can be easy to grow discouraged. In difficult times, it can be easy to grow discouraged because it can appear that the wrong is winning. It can appear that truth is losing. It can appear that false teachers are multiplying and they're deceiving, drawing away many. But Paul assures Timothy and he assures us that just as Janus and Jambres were false teachers who didn't get very far, two out of the ten plagues, that's 20%, And then they were exposed. Their folly became known to all. Similarly, these false teachers, they're ultimately going to fail. Because they have a form of godliness, but they lack the power. And church, that's the gospel. That is the good news. The good news is the power of God. The good news is that Christ has come with a power greater than any false teacher, than any false teaching. Because friends, if we're lovers apt to run off looking for love in all the wrong places, then these teachers that have a form of godliness, they promise us things that will bring us love and joy and life, but ultimately lead us to the grave. We're lovers looking to love and to be loved, and the gospel is that Christ has come to reorder our disordered lives and love. He's come to love and to be loved, to reorient our hearts away from loving ourselves and towards loving Him. The Lord spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, saying in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Friends, the the, the solution to our disordered love and our disordered lives is a new heart, is new love. And the Holy Spirit has come to give us new love, to give us a new heart, to reorder our heart, because by reordering our heart and reordering our love, it will reorder our lives, it will reorder the world. But it starts here. We're lovers, and our hearts need to be reordered that we might love the right things, that we might love God and not ourselves, that we might follow and obey Him. 
and not follow and obey our desires. The gospel is that there is a power. There is a power that has come to reorder the disordered loves and disordered lives. It's a power not found in any false teacher or empty promise. It is a power found only in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And church, the good news, the gospel, is that that power is available to you and to me today. Friends, do you know the power of Jesus Christ? Is He reordering right now your love and reordering your life that you might follow Him? Is your religious practice about more than just loving and glorifying yourself? Is it about loving and glorifying the Lord? Are there distortions of the faith that you're tempted to believe like asceticism or antinomianism, adding to or removing from the truth of the gospel? Are you wooed by purveyors of hopeful agnosticism, ignoring the proven signposts and compass points of humble belief? Do you possess a form of godliness and yet deny and resist the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? I'm a lover. You're a lover. We are lovers. And Christ has come by the power of His Spirit to give us new love. To give us a new heart. So that our lives might be reordered. So that we might be renewed. Friends, who do you love? Let's pray. Father, help us to love as You've loved us. Come, Spirit. You've promised us new hearts. You've promised to put a right spirit within us. And we ask that You would. We ask that You'd reorder our disordered loves. That You'd reorder our disordered lives. That You'd reconcile. That You'd restore. And that You'd help us. Help us to go forth from this place declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who has come to give us new hearts and new lives. May he be glorified in and through us now. In Jesus' name, amen.